Chapter 4, Part 13 of Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Morgan Scorpion. Memoirs of Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds, Volume 1 by Charles Mackay. The Alchemists, Part 13. Cagliostro. This famous charlatan, the friend and successor of Saint-Germain, ran a career still more extraordinary. He was the arch-quack of his age, the last of the great pretenders to the philosopher's stone and the water of life, and during his brief season of prosperity one of the most conspicuous characters of Europe. His real name was Joseph Balsamo. He was born at Palermo about the year 1743 of humble parentage. He had the misfortune to lose his father during his infancy, and his education was left in consequence to some relatives of his mother, the latter being too poor to afford him any instruction beyond mere reading and writing. He was sent in his fifteenth year to a monastery to be taught the elements of chemistry and physic, but his temper was so impetuous, his indolence so invincible, and his vicious habits so deeply rooted that he made no progress. After remaining some years, he left it with the character of an uninformed and dissipated young man, with good natural talents but a bad disposition. When he became of age, he abandoned himself to a life of riot and debauchery, and entered himself, in fact, into that celebrated fraternity known in France and Italy as the Knights of Industry, and in England as the Swell Mob. He was far from being an idle or unwilling member of the corps. The first way in which he distinguished himself was by forging orders of admission to the theatres. He afterwards robbed his uncle, and counterfeited a will. For acts like these he paid frequent compulsory visits to the prisons of Palermo. Somehow or other he acquired the character of a sorcerer, of a man who had failed in discovering the secrets of alchemy, and he sold his soul to the devil for the gold which he was not able to make by means of transmutation. He took no pains to disabuse the popular mind on this particular, but rather encouraged the belief than otherwise. He at last made use of it to cheat a silversmith named Murano of about sixty ounces of gold, and was in consequence obliged to leave Palermo. He persuaded this man that he could show him a treasure hidden in a cave, for which service he was to receive the sixty ounces of gold, while the silversmith was to have all the treasure for the mere trouble of digging it up. They went together at midnight to an excavation in the vicinity of Palermo, where Balsamo drew a magic circle and invoked the devil to show his treasures. Suddenly there appeared half a dozen fellows, the accomplices of the swindler, dressed to represent devils, with horns on their heads, claws to their fingers, and vomiting apparently red and blue flame. They were armed with pitchforks, with which they belaboured poor Murano till he was almost dead, and robbed him of his sixty ounces of gold, and all the valuables he carried about his person. They then made off, accompanied by Balsamo, leaving the unlucky silversmith to recover or die at his leisure. Nature chose the former course and soon after daylight he was restored to his senses, smarting in body from his blows, and in spirit for the deception of which he had been the victim. His first impulse was to denounce Balsamo to the magistrates of the town, but on further reflection he was afraid of the ridicule that a full exposure of all the circumstances would draw upon him. He therefore took the truly Italian resolution of being revenged on Balsamo by murdering him at the first convenient opportunity. Having given utterance to this threat in the hearing of a friend of Balsamo, it was reported to the latter, who immediately packed up his valuables and quitted Europe. He chose Medina in Arabia for his future dwelling-place, 
and there became acquainted with a Greek named Altotus, a man exceedingly well versed in all the languages of the East, and an indefatigable student of alchemy. He possessed an invaluable collection of Arabian manuscripts on his favourite science, and studied them with such unremitting industry that he found he had not sufficient time to attend to his crucibles and furnaces without neglecting his books. He was looking about for an assistant when Balsamo opportunely presented himself, and made so favourable an impression that he was at once engaged in that capacity. But the relation of master and servant did not long subsist between them. Balsamo was too ambitious and too clever to play a secondary part, and within fifteen days of their first acquaintance they were bound together as friends and partners. Altotus, in the course of a long life devoted to alchemy, had stumbled upon some valuable discoveries in chemistry, one of which was an ingredient for improving the manufacture of flax, and imparting to goods of that material a gloss and softness almost equal to silk. Balsamo gave him the good advice to leave the philosopher's stone for the present undiscovered and make gold out of their flax. The advice was taken, and they proceeded together to Alexandria to trade with a large stock of that article. They stayed forty days in Alexandria, and gained a considerable sum by their venture. They afterwards visited other cities in Egypt, and were equally successful. They also visited Turkey, where they sold drugs and amulets. On their return to Europe they were driven by stress of weather into Malta, and were hospitably received by Pinto, the Grand Master of the Knights, and a famous alchemist. They worked in his laboratory for some months, and tried hard to change a pewter platter into a silver one. Balsamo, having less faith in his companions, was soon wearied, and obtaining from his host many letters of introduction to Roman Naples, he left him in Altotus to find the Philosopher's Stone and transmute the pewter platter without him. He had long since dropped the name of Balsamo on account of the many ugly associations that clung to it, and during his travels he had assumed at least half a score others with titles annexed to them. He called himself sometimes the Chevalier de Fischio, the Marquis de Melissa, the Baron de Belmonte, de Pellegrini, de Anna, de Phoenix, de Hara, but most commonly the Count de Cagliostro. Under the latter title he entered Rome, and never afterwards changed it. In this city he gave himself out as the restorer of the Rosicrucian philosophy, said he could transmute all metals into gold, that he could render himself invisible, cure all diseases, and administer an elixir against old age and decay. His letters from the Grand Master Pinto procured him an introduction into the best families. He made money rapidly by the sale of his elixir vitae, and like other quacks performed many remarkable cures by inspiring his patients with the most complete faith and reliance upon his powers an advantage which the most impudent charlatans often possess over the regular practitioner. While thus in a fair way of making him his fortune, he became acquainted with the beautiful Lorenza Feliciana, a young lady of noble birth, but without fortune. Cagliostro soon discovered that she possessed accomplishments that were invaluable. Besides her ravishing beauty, she had the readiest wit, the most engaging manners, the most fertile imagination, and the least principle of any of the maidens of Rome. She was just the wife for Cagliostro, who proposed himself to her, and was accepted. After their marriage he instructed his fair Lorenza in all the secrets of his calling, taught her pretty lips to invoke angels and genii and sylphs, salamanders and undines, and, when required, devils and evil spirits. Lorenza was an apt scholar, and she soon learned all the jargon of the alchemists and all the spells of the enchanters, and thus accomplished the hopeful pair set out on their travels to levy contributions on the superstitious and the credulous. 
They first went to Sleswig on a visit to the Comte de Saint-Germain, their great predecessor in the art of making dupes, and were received by him in the most magnificent manner. They no doubt fortified their minds for the career they had chosen by the sage discourse of that worshipful gentleman, for immediately after they left him they began their operations. They travelled for three or four years in Russia, Poland and Germany, transmuting metals, telling fortunes, raising spirits, and selling the elixir vitae wherever they went. But there is no record of their doings, from whence to draw a more particular detail. It was not until they made their appearance in England in 1776 that the names of the Count and Countess de Cagliostro began to acquire a European reputation. They arrived in London in the July of that year, possessed of property, in plate, jewels and specie, to the amount of about £3,000. They hired apartments in Whitcomb Street and lived for some months quietly. In the same house there lodged a Portuguese woman named Blavery, who being in necessitous circumstances was engaged by the Count as interpreter. She was constantly admitted into his laboratory where he spent much of his time in search of the philosopher's stone. She spread abroad the fame of her entertainer in return for his hospitality, and laboured hard to impress everybody with as full a belief in his extraordinary powers as she felt herself. But as a female interpreter of the rank and appearance of Madame Blavery did not exactly correspond with the Count's notions either of dignity or decorum, he hired a person named Vitellini, a teacher of languages, to act in that capacity. Vitellini was a desperate gambler, a man who had tried almost every resource to repair his ruined fortunes, including, among the rest, the search for the philosopher's stone. Immediately that he saw the Count's operations, he was convinced that the great secret was his, and that the golden gates of the Palace of Fortune were open to let him in. With still more enthusiasm than Madame Blavery, he held forth to his acquaintances, and in all public places, that the Count was an extraordinary man, a true adept whose fortune was immense, and who could transmute into pure and solid gold as much lead, iron and copper as he pleased. The consequence was that the house of Cagliostro was besieged by crowds of the idle, the credulous and the avaricious, all eager to obtain a sight of the philosopher or to share in the boundless wealth which he could call into existence. Unfortunately for Cagliostro he had fallen into evil hands. Instead of duping the people of England as he might have done, he became himself the victim of a gang of swindlers who, with the fullest reliance on his occult powers, only sought to make money of him. Vitellini introduced to him a ruined gambler, like himself, named Scott, whom he represented as a Scottish nobleman, attracted to London solely by his desire to see and converse with the extraordinary man whose fame had spread to the distant mountains of the north. Cagliostro received him with great kindness and cordiality, and Lord Scott thereupon introduced a woman named Fry as Lady Scott, who was to act as chaperone to the Countess de Cagliostro, and make her acquainted with all the noble families of Britain. Thus things went swimmingly. His lordship, whose effects had not arrived from Scotland, and who had no banker in London, borrowed two hundred pounds of the Count. They were lent without scruple. So flattered was Cagliostro by the attentions paid him, the respect, nay, veneration they pretended to feel for him, and the complete deference with which they listened to every word that fell from his lips. Superstitious, like all desperate gamesters, Scott had often tried magical and cabalistic numbers, in the hope of discovering lucky numbers in the lottery or at the roulette table. He had in his possession a cabalistic manuscript containing various arithmetical combinations of the kind which he submitted to Cagliostro, with an urgent request that he would select a number. Cagliostro took the manuscript and studied it, but as he himself informs us, with no confidence in its truth. 
He, however, predicted twenty as the successful number for the 6th of November following. Scott ventured a small sum upon this number out of the two hundred pounds he had borrowed, and won. Cagliostro, incited by the success, prognosticated number twenty-five for the next drawing. Scott tried again and won a hundred guineas. The numbers fifty-five and fifty-seven were announced with equal success for the eighteenth of the same month, to the no small astonishment and delight of Cagliostro, who thereupon resolved to try fortune for himself and not for others. To all the entreaties of Scott and his lady that he would predict more numbers for them, he turned a deaf ear, even while he still thought him a lord and a man of honour. But when he discovered that he was a mere swindler, and the pretended Lady Scott an artful woman of the town, he closed his door upon them and on all their gang. Having complete faith in the supernatural powers of the Count, they were in the deepest distress at having lost his countenance. They tried by every means their ingenuity could suggest to propitiate him again. They implored, they threatened, and endeavoured to bribe him, but all was vain. Cagliostro would neither see nor correspond with them. In the meantime they lived extravagantly, and in the hope of future exhausted all their present gains. They were reduced to the last extremity when Miss Fry obtained access to the Countess and received a guinea from her on the representation that she was starving. Miss Fry, not contented with this, begged her to intercede with her husband, that for the last time he would point out a lucky number in the lottery. The Countess promised to exert her influence, and Cagliostro, thus entreated, named the number eight, at the same time reiterating his determination to have no more to do with any of them. By an extraordinary hazard which filled Cagliostro with surprise and pleasure, number eight was the greatest prize in the lottery. Miss Fry and her associates cleared fifteen hundred guineas by the adventure, and became more than ever convinced of the occult powers of Cagliostro, and strengthened in their determination never to quit him until they had made their fortunes. Out of the proceeds Miss Fry bought a handsome necklace at a pawnbroker's for ninety guineas. She then ordered a richly chased gold box having two compartments to be made at a jeweller's, and putting the necklace in the one, filled the other with a fine aromatic snuff. She then sought another interview with Madame de Cagliostro, and urged her to accept the box as a small token of her esteem and gratitude, without mentioning the valuable necklace that was concealed in it. Madame de Cagliostro accepted the present, and was from that hour exposed to the most incessant persecution from all the confederates, Blavery, Vitellini, and the pretended Lord and Lady Scott. They flattered themselves they had regained their lost footing in the house, and came day after day to know lucky numbers in the lottery, sometimes forcing themselves up the stairs and into the Count's laboratory, in spite of the efforts of the servants to prevent them. Cagliostro, exasperated by the pertinacity, threatened to call in the assistance of the magistrates, and taking Miss Fry by the shoulders, pushed her into the streets. From that time may be dated the misfortunes of Cagliostro. Miss Fry, at the instigation of her paramour, determined on vengeance. Her first act was to swear a debt of two hundred pounds against Cagliostro, and to cause him to be arrested for that sum. Whilst he was in custody in a sponging house, Scott, accompanied by a low attorney, broke into his laboratory, and carried off a small box containing, as they believed, the power of transmutation, and a number of cabalistic manuscripts and treaties upon alchemy. They also brought an action against him for the recovery of the necklace, and Miss Fry accused both him and his countess of sorcery and witchcraft, and of foretelling numbers in the lottery by the aid of the devil. This latter charge was actually heard before Mr. Justice Miller. 
The action of Trover for the necklace was tried before the Lord Chief Justice of the Common Pleas, who recommended the parties to submit to arbitration. In the meantime, Cagliostro remained in prison for several weeks, till having procured bail, he was liberated. He was soon after waited upon by an attorney named Reynolds, also deep in the plot, who offered to compromise all the actions upon certain conditions. Scott, who had accompanied him, concealed himself behind the door, and suddenly rushing out, presented a pistol at the heart of Cagliostro, swearing he would shoot him instantly if he would not tell him truly the art of predicting lucky numbers under transmuting metals. Reynolds, pretending to be very angry, disarmed his accomplice, and entreated the Count to satisfy them by fair means, and disclose his secrets, promising that if he would do so they would discharge all the actions, and offer him no further molestation. Cagliostro replied that threats and entreaties were alike useless, that he knew no secrets, and that the powder of transmutation of which they had robbed him was of no value to anybody but himself. He offered, however, if they would discharge the actions, and return the powder and the manuscripts, to forgive them all the money they had swindled him out of. These conditions were refused, and Scott and Reynolds departed, swearing vengeance against him. Cagliostro appears to have been quite ignorant of the forms of law in England, and to have been without a friend to advise him as to the best course he should pursue. Whilst he was conversing with his countess on the difficulties that beset them, one of his bail called, and invited him to ride in a hackney couch to the house of a person who would see him righted. Cagliostro consented, and was driven to the King's Bench prison where his friend left him. He did not discover for several hours that he was a prisoner, or, in fact, understand the process of being surrendered by one's bail. He regained his liberty in a few weeks, and the arbitrators between him and Miss Fry made their award against him. He was ordered to pay the two hundred pounds she had sworn against him, and to restore the necklace and gold-box which had been presented to the Countess. Cagliostro was so disgusted that he determined to quit England. His pretensions, besides, had been unmercifully exposed by a Frenchman named Morand, the editor of the Courrier de l'Europe, published in London. To add to his distress, he was recognised in Westminster Hall as Joseph Balsamo, the swindler of Palermo. Such a complication of disgrace was not to be borne. He and his countess packed up their small effects and left England with no more than fifty pounds, out of the three thousand they had brought with them. They first proceeded to Brussels, where fortune was more auspicious. They sold considerable quantities of the elixir of life, performed many cures, and recruited their finances. They then took their course through Germany to Russia, and always with the same success. Gold flowed into their coffers faster than they could count it. They quite forgot all the woes they had endured in England, and learned to be more circumspect in the choice of their acquaintance. In the year 1780 they made their appearance in Strasbourg. Their fame had reached the city before them. They took a magnificent hotel, and invited all the principal persons of the place to their table. Their wealth appeared to be boundless, and their hospitality equal to it. Both the Count and Countess acted as physicians, and gave money, advice, and medicine to all the necessitous and suffering of the town. Many of the cures they performed astonished those regular practitioners who did not make sufficient allowance for the wonderful influence of imagination in certain cases. The Countess, who at this time was not more than five-and-twenty, and all radiant with grace, beauty, and cheerfulness, spoke openly of her eldest son as a fine young man of eight-and-twenty, who had been for some years a captain in the Dutch service. The trick succeeded to admiration. 
All the ugly old woman in Strasbourg, and for miles around, thronged the saloon of the countess to purchase the liquid which was to make them as blooming as their daughters. The young woman came in equal abundance, that they might preserve their charms. And when twice as old as Ninon de l'Enclos, be more captivating than she, while men who were not wanting who were fools enough to imagine that they might keep off the inevitable stroke of the grim foe by a few drops of the same incomparable elixir. The countess, sooth to say, looked like the incarnation of immortal loveliness, a very goddess of youth and beauty, and it is possible that the crowds of young men and old, who at all convenient seasons haunted the perfumed chambers of this enchantress, were attracted less by their belief in her occult powers than from admiration of her languishing bright eyes and sparkling conversation. But amid all the incense that was offered at her shrine, Madame de Cagliostro was ever faithful to her spouse. She encouraged hopes, it is true, but she never realized them. She excited admiration, yet kept it within bounds, and made men her slaves, without ever granting a favor of which the vainest might boast. In this city they made the acquaintance of many eminent persons, and among others of the Cardinal Prince de Rohan, who was destined afterwards to exercise so untoward an influence over their fate. The cardinal, who seems to have had great faith in him as a philosopher, persuaded him to visit Paris in his company, which he did, but remained only thirteen days. He preferred the society of Strasbourg, and returned thither with the intention of fixing his residence far from the capital. But he soon found that the first excitement of his arrival had passed away. People began to reason with themselves, to be ashamed of their own admiration. The populace, among whom he had lavished his charity with a bountiful hand, accused him of being the Antichrist, the wandering Jew, the man of fourteen hundred years of age, a demon in human shape, sent to lure the ignorant to their destruction, while the more opulent and better informed called him a spy in the pay of foreign governments, an agent of the police, a swindler, and a man of evil life. The outcry grew at last so strong that he deemed it prudent to try his fortune elsewhere. He went first to Naples, but that city was too near Palermo. He dreaded recognition from some of his early friends, and after a short stay returned to France. He chose Bordeaux as his next dwelling-place, and created as great a sensation there as he had done in Strasbourg. He announced himself as the founder of a new school of medicine and philosophy, boasted of his ability to cure all diseases, and invited the poor and suffering to visit him, and he would relieve the distress of the one class, and cure the ailings of the other. All day long the street opposite his magnificent hotel was crowded by the populace, the halt and the blind, women with sick babes in their arms, and persons suffering under every species of human infirmity flocked to this wonderful doctor. The relief he afforded in money more than counterbalanced the failure of his nostrums, and the affluence of people from all the surrounding country became so great that the jurats of the city granted him a military guard to be stationed day and night before his door to keep order. The anticipations of Cagliostro were realized. The rich were struck with admiration of his charity and benevolence, and impressed with a full conviction of his marvellous powers. The sale of the elixir went on admirably. His saloons were thronged with the wealthy dupes who came to purchase immortality. Beauty that would endure for centuries was the attraction for the fair sex. Health and strength for the same period were the baits held out to the other. His charming countess, in the meantime, brought grist to the mill by telling fortunes and casting nativities, or granting attendant sylphs to any ladies who would pay sufficiently for their services. What was still better, as tending to keep up the credit of her husband, she gave the most magnificent parties in Bordeaux, 
But as at Strasbourg, the popular delusion lasted for a few months only and burnt itself out. Cagliostro forgot in the intoxication of success that there was a limit to quackery which once passed inspired distrust. When he pretended to call spirits from the tomb, people became incredulous. He was accused of being an enemy to religion, of denying Christ, and of being the wandering Jew. He despised these rumours as long as they were confined to a few, but when they spread over the town when he received no more fees, when his parties were abandoned, and his acquaintance turned away when they met him in the street, he thought it high time to shift his quarters. He was by this time wearied of the provinces, and turned his thoughts to the capital. On his arrival he announced himself as the restorer of Egyptian Freemasonry, and the founder of a new philosophy. He immediately made his way into the best society by means of his friend the Cardinal de Rohan. His success as a magician was quite extraordinary. The most considerable persons of the time visited him. He boasted of being able, like the Rosicrucians, to converse with the elementary spirits, to invoke the mighty dead from the grave, to transmute metals, and to discover occult things by means of the special protection of God towards him. Like Dr. D, he summoned the angels to reveal the future, and they appeared and conversed with him in crystals and under glass bells. Open brackets, 48, close brackets. There was hardly, says the Biographie des Contemporaines, a fine lady in Paris who would not sup with the shade of Lucretius in the apartments of Cagliostro, a military officer who would not discuss the art of war with Caesar, Hannibal, or Alexander, or an advocate or counsellor who would not argue legal points with the ghost of Cicero. These interviews with the departed were very expensive, for, as Cagliostro said, the dead would not rise for nothing. The Countess, as usual, exercised all her ingenuity to support her husband's credit. She was a great favourite with her own sex, to many a delighted and wandering auditory of whom she detailed the marvellous powers of Cagliostro. She said he could render himself invisible, traverse the world with the rapidity of thought, and be in several places at the same time. He had not been long at Paris before he became involved in the celebrated affair of the Queen's necklace. His friend the Cardinal de Rohan, enamoured of the charms of Marie Antoinette, was in sore distress at her coldness, and the, the displeasure she had so often manifested against him. There was at that time a lady named Lamotte in the service of the Queen, of whom the Cardinal was foolish enough to make a confidant. Madame de Lamotte, in return, endeavoured to make a tool of the Cardinal, and succeeded but too well in her projects. In her capacity of chamberwoman, or lady of honour to the Queen, she was present at an interview between Her Majesty and Monsieur Burma, a wealthy jeweller of Paris, when the latter offered for sale a magnificent diamond necklace, valued at one million six hundred thousand francs, or about sixty-four thousand pounds sterling. The Queen admired it greatly, but dismissed the jeweller with the expression of her regret that she was too poor to purchase it. Madame de la Motte formed a plan to get this costly ornament into her own possession, and determined to make the Cardinal de Rohan the instrument by which to effect it. She therefore sought an interview with him, and pretending to sympathise in his grief for the Queen's displeasure, told him she knew a way by which he might be restored to favour. She then mentioned the necklace, and the sorrow of the Queen was that she could not afford to buy it. The Cardinal, who was as wealthy as he was foolish, immediately offered to purchase the necklace, and make a present of it to the Queen. Madame de la Motte told him by no means to do so, as he would thereby offend Her Majesty. His plan would be to induce the jeweller to give Her Majesty credit, and accept her promissory note for the amount at a certain date, to be hereafter agreed upon. 
The cardinal readily agreed to the proposal, and instructed the jeweller to draw up an agreement, and he would procure the Queen's signature. He placed this in the hands of Madame de la Motte, who returned it shortly afterwards with the words, Bonbon, approuvé, Marie Antoinette, written in the margin. She told him at the same time that the Queen was highly pleased with his conduct in the matter, and would appoint a meeting with him in the Garden of Versailles, when she would present him with a flower as a token of her regard. The Cardinal showed the forged document to the jeweller, obtained the necklace, and delivered it into the hands of Madame de la Motte. So far all was well. Her next object was to satisfy the Cardinal, who waited impatiently at the promised interview with his royal mistress. There was at that time in Paris a young woman named Dolliver, noted for a resemblance to the Queen, and Madame de la Motte, on the promise of a handsome reward, found no difficulty in persuading her to personate Marie Antoinette, and meet the Cardinal de Rohan in the evening twilight in the gardens of Versailles. The meeting took place accordingly. The Cardinal was deceived by the uncertain light, the great resemblance of the counterfeit, and his own hopes, and having received the flower from his Mademoiselle d'Oliva, went home with a lighter heart than had beat in his bosom for many a day. Note 50. The enemies of the unfortunate Queen of France, when the progress of the Revolution embittered their animosity against her, maintained that she was really a party in this transaction, that she, and not Madame d'Oliver, met the Cardinal and rewarded him with the flower, and that the story above related was merely concocted between her and La Motte and others to cheat the jeweller of his one million six hundred thousand francs. End of note 50. In the course of time the forgery of the Queen's signature was discovered. Burma the jeweller immediately named the Cardinal de Rohan and Madame de la Motte as the persons with whom he had negotiated, and they were both arrested and thrown into the Bastille. La Motte was subjected to a rigorous examination, and the disclosures she made implicating Cagliostro. He was seized, along with his wife, and also sent to the Bastille. A story involving so much scandal necessarily excited great curiosity. Nothing was to be heard of in Paris but the Queen's necklace, with the surmises of the guilt or innocence of the several parties implicated. The husband of Madame de la Motte escaped England, and in the opinion of many took the necklace with him, and there disposed of it to different jewellers in small quantities at a time. But Madame de la Motte insisted she had entrusted it to Cagliostro, who had seized and taken it to pieces to swell the treasures of his immense unequalled fortune. She spoke of him as an empiric, a mean alchemist, a dreamer on the philosopher's stone, a false prophet, a profaner of the true worship, the self-dubbed Count Cagliostro. She further said that he originally conceived the project of ruining the Cardinal de Rohan, that he persuaded her, by the exercise of some magic influence over her mind, to aid and abet the scheme, and that he was a robber, a swindler, and a sorcerer. After all the accused parties had remained for upwards of six months in the Bastille, the trial commenced. The depositions of the witnesses having been heard, Cagliostro, as the principal culprit, was first called upon for his defence. He was listened to with the most breathless attention. He put himself into a theatrical attitude, and thus began, I am oppressed, I am accused, I am calumniated. Have I deserved this fate? I descend into my conscience, and I there find the peace that men refuse me. I have travelled a great deal, I am known all over Europe, and a great part of Asia and Africa. I have everywhere shown myself the friend of my fellow creatures. My knowledge, my time, my fortune have ever been employed in the relief of distress. I have studied and practised medicine, but I have never degraded that most noble and consoling of arts by mercenary speculations of any kind. Though always giving and never receiving, I have preserved my independence. 
I have even carried my delicacy so far as to refuse the favour of kings. I have given gratuitously my remedies and my advice to the rich. The poor have received from me both remedies and money. I have never contracted any debts, and my manners are pure and uncorrupted. After much more self-laudation of the same kind, he went on to complain of the great hardships he had endured in being separated for so many months from his innocent and loving wife, who, as he was given to understand, had been detained in the Bastille, and perhaps chained in an unwholesome dungeon. He denied unequivocally that he had the necklace, or that he had ever seen it, and to silence the rumours and accusations against him, which his own secrecy with regard to the events of his life had perhaps originated, he expressed himself ready to satisfy the curiosity of the public, and to give a plain and full account of his career. He then told a romantic and incredible tale, which imposed upon no one. He said he neither knew the place of his birth nor the name of his parents, but that he spent his infancy in Medina in Arabia, and was brought up under the name of Akarat. He lived in the palace of the great Mufti in the city, and always had three servants to wait upon him, besides his preceptor named Altotus. This Altotus was very fond of him, and told him that his father and mother, who were Christians and nobles, died when he was three months old, and left him in the care of the Mufti. He could never, he said, ascertain their names, for whenever he asked Altotus the question, he was told that it would be dangerous for him to know. Some incautious expressions dropped by his preceptor gave him reason to think they were from Malta. At the age of twelve he began his travels and learned various languages of the East. He remained three years in Mecca where the sheriff, or governor, showed him so much kindness and spoke to him so tenderly and affectionately that he sometimes thought this personage was his father. He quitted this good man with tears in his eyes, and never saw him afterwards, but he was convinced that he was, even at that moment, indebted to his care for all the advantages he enjoyed. Whenever he arrived in any city, either of Europe or Asia, he found an account open for him at the principal bankers or merchants. He could draw upon them to the amount of thousands and hundreds of thousands, and no questions were ever asked beyond his name. He had only to mention the word Acharat, and all his wants were supplied. He firmly believed that the sheriff of Mecca was the friend to whom all was owing. This was the secret of his wealth, and he had no occasion to resort to swindling for a livelihood. It was not worth his while to steal a diamond necklace, when he had wealth enough to purchase as many as he pleased, and more magnificent ones than had ever been worn by a queen of France. As to the other charges brought against him by Madame de la Motte, he had but a short answer to give. She called him an empiric. He was not unfamiliar with the word. If it meant a man who, without being a physician, had some knowledge of medicine, and took no fees, who cured both rich and poor, and took no money from either, he confessed that he was such a man, that he was an empiric. She had also called him a mean alchemist. Whether he were an alchemist or not, the epithet mean could only be applied to those who begged and cringed, and he had never done either. As regards to his being a dreamer about the philosopher's stone, whatever his opinions upon that subject might be, he had been silent, and had never troubled the public with his dreams. Then, as to his being a false prophet, he had not always been so, for he had prophesied to the Cardinal de Rohan that Madame de la Motte would prove a dangerous woman, and the result had verified the prediction. He denied that he was a profaner of the true worship, or that he had striven to bring religion into contempt. On the contrary, he respected every man's religion and never meddled with it. He also denied that he was a Rosicrucian, or that he had ever pretended to be three hundred years of age, or to have had one man in his service for a hundred and fifty years. In conclusion, he said every statement that Madame de la Motte had made regarding him was false, 
and she was mentiris impudentissimi, which two words he begged her counsel to translate for her, as it was not polite to tell her so in French. Such was the substance of his extraordinary answer to the charges against him, an answer which convinced those who were before doubtful that he was one of the most impudent impostors that had ever run the career of deception. Counsel were then heard on behalf of the Cardinal de Rohan and Madame de la Motte. It appearing clearly that the Cardinal was himself the dupe of a vile conspiracy, and there being no evidence against Cagliostro, they were both acquitted. Madame de la Motte was found guilty and sentenced to be publicly whipped and branded with a hot iron on the back. Cagliostro and his wife were then discharged from custody. On applying to the officers of the Bastille for the papers and effects which had been seized at his lodgings, he found that many of them had been abstracted. He thereupon brought an action against them for the recovery of his manuscripts and a small portion of the powder of transmutation. Before the affair could be decided, he received orders to quit Paris within four-and-twenty hours. Fearing that if he were once more enclosed in the dungeons of the Bastille he should never see daylight again, he took his departure immediately and proceeded to England. On his arrival in London he made the acquaintance of the notorious Lord George Gordon, who espoused his cause warmly, and inserted a letter in the public papers, animadverting upon the conduct of the Queen of France in the affair of the necklace, and asserting that she was really the guilty party. For this letter Lord George was exposed to prosecution at the instance of the French ambassador, found guilty of libel, and sentenced to a fine and a long imprisonment. Cagliostro and the Countess afterwards travelled in Italy, where they were arrested by the papal government in 1789 and condemned to death. The charges against him were that he was a Freemason, a heretic, and a sorcerer. This unjustifiable sentence was afterwards commuted into one of perpetual imprisonment in the castle of St. Angelo. His wife was allowed to escape severer punishment by immuring herself in a nunnery. Cagliostro did not long survive. The loss of liberty preyed upon his mind, accumulated misfortunes had injured his health and broken his spirit, and he died early in 1790. His fate may have been no better than he deserved, but it is impossible not to feel that his sentence for the crime assigned was utterly disgraceful to the government that pronounced it. Present State of Alchemy We have now finished the list of the persons who have most distinguished themselves in this unprofitable pursuit. Among them are men of all ranks, characters, and conditions. The truth-seeking but erring philosopher, the ambitious prince and the needy noble who have believed in it, as well as the designing charlatan who has not believed in it, but has merely made the pretension to it the means of cheating his fellows and living upon their credulity. One or more of all these classes will be found in the foregoing pages. It will be seen from the record of their lives that the delusion was not altogether without its uses. Men, in striving to gain too much, do not always overreach themselves. If they cannot arrive at the inaccessible mountain-top, they may perhaps get halfway towards it, and pick up some scraps of wisdom and knowledge on the road. The useful science of chemistry is not a little indebted to its spurious brother of alchemy. Many valuable discoveries have been made in that search for the impossible, which might otherwise have been hidden for centuries yet to come. Roger Bacon, in searching for the philosopher's stone, discovered gunpowder, a still more extraordinary substance. Van Helmont, in the same pursuit, discovered the properties of gas. Geber made discoveries in chemistry which were equally important, and Paracelsus, amidst his perpetual visions of the transmutation of metals, found that mercury was a remedy for one of the most odious and excruciating of all the diseases that afflict humanity. 
In our day little mention is made in Europe of any new devotees of the science, though it is affirmed that one or two of our most illustrious men of science do not admit the pursuit to be so absurd and vain as it has been commonly considered in recent times. The belief in witchcraft, which is scarcely more absurd, still lingers in the popular mind, but few are so credulous as to believe that any elixir could make man live for centuries or turn all our iron and pewter into gold. Alchemy in Europe may be said to be almost wholly exploded, but in the East it still flourishes in as great repute as ever. Recent travellers make constant mention of it, especially in China, Hindustan, Persia, Tartary, Egypt and Arabia. End of chapter 4, part 13